millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. You should celebrate yourself every day. But some days, you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Hello, I'm David Payne, careers editor at Nature, and this is Working Scientist, a Nature Careers podcast. In this seven-part series, Science Diversified, We're exploring how the scientific enterprise truly benefits when you have a team of researchers from a broad range of backgrounds, disciplines and skill sets. Each episode ends with a 10-minute sponsored slot from the International Science Council about its work on diversity. So let's kick off. In this first episode, we're going back to school. We're seeing how scientists at the Francis Crick Institute in London are challenging stereotypes and broadening science's appeal to young children many of them from deprived backgrounds. I'm Hebe and I am 10 years old. I want to be a fashion designer because I like piecing outfits together. Hi, I'm Edie and I'm 11 years old. When I'm older, I would like to be a physiotherapist for humans and animals. My name is Oriol and I'm 11 years old. When I grow up, I want to be a footballer. So we're in a very diverse part of North London. You know, we are really lucky that we have such a mixture of ethnicities and religions and cultures all under one roof. And I think what works so well about ours is that we're so different here. My name is Claire Reynolds and I am the science lead and teacher at Gospel Oak Primary School, which is in North London. It's a school that starts at nursery, so around three years old, and goes all the way up to 11 years old. We're just a mixture of all different children from all different walks of life, and I think what unites them so well is that they all have that love of the crick and that love of wanting to learn science when they're here. We get loaned, essentially, a group of scientists for the week and it is such a highlight for everybody, staff and children. They know when they're coming, everybody is buzzing, you know, the quick week is about to begin. So these scientists will turn up with their equipment, their lab coats, they look incredibly professional, and they are kind of dispersed throughout the school. Hello, I'm Claire Davey. I'm the Education Manager at the Francis Crick Institute. Uh, But before I took on that job, I got a PhD in molecular virology and then worked for the Medical Research Council for 15 years in their viral oncology lab. I was the first person in my family to go to university and ended up working in science. So I've always been interested in how I made that journey and how I can help other young people to 
get there as well. So the Crick is a large biomedical research institute in central London. It's dedicated to understanding the fundamental biology underlying human health and disease. We have a, an education outreach program at the Crick that works with young people, uh, their teachers and their families. And what we're trying to do is encourage them to aspire to careers related to science. So we know that the um, environment that young people have when they're growing up really influences whether they aspire to careers in science and the people and opportunities can often really influence young people's decisions. So we are trying to provide opportunities for local young people to access um, Crick scientists and Crick resources so that they can start their own journeys into careers in science. So when we started the project, we engaged mostly schools in our local neighbourhood of Somerstown. So that's one of the most deprived areas in London and indeed the UK. But over the years we've been able to expand out and now we engage all of the schools within our local borough of Camden. But it's those kind of schools where either they wouldn't be choosing to engage with organisations like the Crick or they couldn't do it because the offer um, wasn't suitable for their young people. That's where we think we can have the most impact in providing equity of access to opportunity for their pupils. We've been working with Gospel Oak School uh, for about three years now. So they are typical of a lot of Camden schools. They uh, have about half of their children having English as a second language. They've got fairly high levels of deprivation as measured by um, children's eligibility for free school meals. Um, and we've been working with them on a number of different projects. So the pupils within that school have been taking part in Crick workshops. My favourite thing about when the Crick visits is that is the fun experiments that they do. My favourite one is in year five, when we got to dress up as atoms and do circuits. In the, near the end of it, we got to make drones and fly them around. My favourite thing about the Crick visits is the um, experiments, because they're really fun and engaging. So one of the experiments that they do while they're here is um, a laser experiment. So thinking about how light travels. So the question is kind of put to the class, you know, how does light travel? And children will hypothesise what they think it is. We'll have a big discussion. But, you know, with science, it's always about proving your ideas and proving what you're thinking. So then we kind of discuss how can we do that? And it's light. You can't really prove it until, obviously, the Crick have this amazing razzle-dazzle that they get out. So they kind of set up a giant water tank within the classroom. And the idea is that they kind of shine a laser beam through this water. Now already lasers water, the children are just absolutely enthralled. And we can't really see where the light is still. So then we have a look at all of the equipment that they've got with them. And the idea is that the children try and work out with the goods that they've got, how they would be able to see the light travel. 
and it's through Dettol, or another kind of antiseptic type brand. They kind of add the drops to the water, shine the laser through, and through the particles, the children are able to see rays of light, you know, light traveling through the water. And then we're able to manipulate it through the use of mirrors, um, give it a brand new course to run through. And it's phenomenal. It's so, so interesting to watch. And also just how engaged they are by the whole process. It's fantastic. By the end of it, they literally feel like they are scientists. Um, I like the fun experiments that they do because, like I said, it could turn out wrong or right. And either way, it's just super fun. And my favourite is wearing science scripts because it can make you feel very important and it makes me feel like a real scientist. They do exciting experiments. My favourite was trying to split hydrogen peroxide, which caused an explosion. The science is different from normal school because there are loads of fancy equipment and real scientists to talk to. One of the main things that the Crick do really well is kind of push the idea of or smashing the idea of that stereotypical scientist. And I think that's one of the things that I love about them is the diversity within the Crick. So, you know, when you've got that image of a scientist in your head, you're thinking of somebody who is wearing a lab coat. You tend to be a man. You tend to be a bit older. And what you find with the Crick is that they're not those things. And I love that. I think that actually inspires the children more than anything else because they don't fit that stereotype. So what you find is you've got a variety of different ages, uh, different genders, different ethnicities that are all scientists rock up and the kids just think they're the coolest thing in the world. So the little ones do wear the lab coats because they are obsessed with them. But what you find is the more they go throughout the school, the less they try to conform to those stereotypes of their scientist. Before they, the crick came to, into our school, I used to think science was just teachers telling us things in a lesson. I liked it when the scientists visit and because it is very, very fun and I learn a lot and it's interesting. And make them, I think what's so brilliant about the Crick is they really make the children feel like what they have to say is valid and that it's important and no question is ever a silly question and one of the the best things that they do with them is they help them understand that to be a scientist, all you really need to do is ask a question and be willing to make a mistake. And I think that's such a powerful message, you know, in a time where everything has to be perfect. What they're pushing is it's okay to make mistakes, keep making them until it's right. So I love that, I think it's great. So we think the young children are really positive uh, when they experience the crick. So when we go into schools, uh, they're excited to see us. They remember us often by name. They can remember what they've done with us in, in previous years. Um, they sometimes see us out in the street my team sometimes get mobbed by um, groups of small children running up and sort of clinging on their legs and things and when the children are aged roughly nine or ten in that year group they come and visit our lab so they spend the day actually at the crick so they come in and they do um, some electronics work, making uh, sort of crazy uh, circuit contraptions and they do some mystery powder chemistry investigations. And it's 
that act of coming in the building and putting on lab coats and, and doing science actually in the crick that we think is really important for them to be able to visualise themselves in the in the future doing this kind of role. So having them in the building is a, is a real joy and we see that they really enjoy. And then when they're slightly older than that, so sort of 14 to 18, we can start actually getting them in the main part of the building where they can take work experience um, positions. So we have about 90 young people a year come in um, and they could be working in the labs or they could be working in our operations teams, um, experiencing lots of different aspects of the CRIC and hopefully finding something that they want to do in the future. So Science Capital, is you can kind of think of it as a collection of knowledge, skills, experiences and attitudes that a person has towards science. And we know that it's very much affected by things in their background. So whether that's their gender or their ethnicity or their social class, who they've been educated by and with, opportunities they've had maybe from where they live. And so all of these kind of things come together in this sort of collected term called science capital. And we know that people with high levels of science capital are more likely to aspire to careers in science. And so although we can't easily change those underlying demographics, we can do things to help people who we would expect to have low science capital to actually raise their levels of science capital. Some of the teachers are often quite surprised at how children who they wouldn't really regard as sciencey back in the classroom, how they sort of behave and how they exceed the teacher's expectations when they're with us. And we think that that's really good. Um, we think that science is for everybody and anybody and that if we can help broaden science's appeal to those children, then we've done our job. I thought science was just numbers and not as much fun as, as I found out it is from doing the science experiments with the scientists. They definitely teach us more about the world around us and they make us want to find out more after the lesson. Now that's all for this section of our Working Scientist podcast. We now have a slot sponsored by the International Science Council, which looks at why diversity is so critical to advancing science and the steps we can take to improve it. I'm David Payne, Careers Editor at Nature. Thanks for listening. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. It's fundamental to have diverse perspectives. When you come from a particularly different reality, you are more aware 
of the assumptions that need to be changed. What we have to do is teach beyond national and continental and institutional boundaries. We can't unsee the challenges. We need to then respond to them. What do we mean by diversity in science? Is it about ideas? About representation? The people who work in science and those who set the research agenda? Is it about what gets taught on science curricula? Or is it about the stories we tell and the people we celebrate? I'm Marnie Chesterton, and on this podcast series from the International Science Council, we're exploring diversity in science, what it is and why it matters. Over the next six episodes, we'll hear from people who are pushing for change in science as a practice, in science systems and science research. We'll be celebrating different perspectives and looking at practical steps to support diversity in scientific workplaces and how we can make things genuinely inclusive for those who can find themselves in the minority in science settings, whether that's because of their race, gender, sexuality, class or disability. We'll also be looking at what it takes to be a better ally. In this first episode, why does diversity in science matter? We live in unprecedented times. From the COVID-19 pandemic to the climate emergency, from the antibiotic resistance crisis to addressing rising inequality, it's no exaggeration to say that as a species, we're facing threats on an existential level. Well, I think it's important to say that science has always been important, but never more so than now as humanity grapples with the problems of living sustainably, equitably and, of course, safely on planet Earth. This is Haida Hackman, CEO of the International Science Council, or the ISC. The ISC has existed in some form for almost a century and aims to be a global voice for all types of science, including the physical, mathematical and life sciences, as well as the social sciences, like economics. As a global voice for science, we seek to be an ally to the scientific community and an advocate for the value of science on the global stage. Given the kind of complex global problems that we're grappling with, we need to ensure that our science is as strong as it possibly can be. And that means that it should be rigorous and relevant, addressing the needs and interests of different communities in all parts of the world, and that it is future-proofed. So how do we strengthen our science? One essential way is to make sure that it includes the perspectives, insights, the ideas, the talent, the voices, if you will, of all scientists. If science is to deliver on today's global demands, we need to draw on all the potential knowledge available in the world. We need to have at hand a global knowledge trust that is inclusive and diverse. And that's why diversity is so important in today's context. If we're to have any hope of meeting the challenges we face, we need a science that's fit for purpose one that serves and represents people living across the world. But we're not there yet. According to a study done by UNESCO, fewer than 30% of researchers worldwide are women. In 2019, less than 1% of UK professors were black. Science systems and research questions today lack diversity across many dimensions – race, gender, geography, 
ethnicity, social class and age. Tackling this lack of diversity first requires us to recognise that there is a problem. And the roots of this problem can be traced back a long, long way. We first have to acknowledge something that sometimes we don't really acknowledge because we think of science as a kind of abstract system. That science does have a history. And to understand science itself means the, that we need to begin to pay attention to that history. This is Anthony Bogues, Professor of Humanities and Critical Theory and Professor of Africana Studies at Brown University. Now, humans have been asking questions about the world and experimenting right from our earliest beginnings. Modern astronomy is based on learnings from the ancient Babylonians and indigenous knowledge systems have existed for thousands of years. But Antony argues that by studying the development of modern science during the Age of Enlightenment in Europe, as well as the social and cultural forces of that time, we can gain some valuable insight into how we've inherited the science we have today. The history of modern science, and here I'm talking about 15th, 16th and 17th uh, century, uh, begins really through a set of um, intellectual um, events that are really important in uh, European history. The emergence of enlightenment, the rearrangement of uh, the, the place of the human beings in the, in the so-called universal order, all of that happens simultaneously with the emergence of, of colonialism and racial slavery. And so I think it's important to understand that while science emerges, while, while there's an attempt to understand the physical world, the biological world, um, the plant life and so on, while all these things are happening, what you also get is a science of the human, called at that time science of man, in which there's a hierarchy, and in that hierarchy, issues of race and so-called characteristics are, are deeply embedded. You cannot therefore separate the emergence of science, particularly the science of biology, from a science of man. And you can't separate the science of man from the uh, hierarchical classificator schemas that were organized at the time. So I think this is what I mean by to think about science not as a kind of uh, objective subject that comes into the world without any kind of uh, human interference, but actually comes into the world because it is a human invention, comes into the world um, with a set of historical frames that actually shapes what it is that science is about. If what we know today as science emerged this way, if it's intimately bound up with a way of classifying human beings and putting them in a hierarchy, then how is that legacy felt now? So you have two things. One, you have a way in which um, these things shape how people are treated, i.e. at a medical level, um, you know, when somebody goes into the doctor's office. And then you also have a way in which the, this racial regime of knowledge then suggests the power and those who are in charge that some people can't do this and some people can't do that. And in and, and both those cases, what you are looking at is how the life chances of people are impacted upon concretely. It then means that you know, universities and science organizations and so on have to look at those two things. You have to look at 
how then do you transform medical education? How do you transform um, your institutional culture, which will allow, you know, what people call diversity, but which will allow other folks to be able to participate to, to their fullest capacity in science? These are big questions for everyone working in science, and they're more pressing today than they've ever been. But there's another, more fundamental issue at the heart of this. Is broadening diversity about making more productive science with better outcomes for humanity? Or, at an underlying level, should it be about basic rights, about justice and equity? You know, it's perhaps a little-known fact that the Universal Declaration of Human Rights includes the right to share in scientific advancement and its benefits. Now, in line with this, the ISC has always upheld as a statutory principle the so-called universality of science. And that means that everyone should have the right to participate in science, to become a scientist, and to contribute to scientific advancement themselves if they want to do so. It also means that everyone has the right to enjoy the fruits of scientific knowledge. And our task as an organization and as the global voice for science is to ensure that that commitment is translated into practical, positive change. So how can we bring about this change? In 2020, the death of George Floyd in police custody created shock around the world and reignited debates about the extent of systemic racism in our societies. For the ISC, this meant thinking critically about what part it could play in tackling systemic discrimination and deciding to take a more public stand. So we published a statement on combating systemic racism and other forms of discrimination in science calling on our members, but also our international partner organizations to join us, not only in updating our understanding and our dialogue on discrimination in science, but also in initiating new urgent and concrete action that should be aimed at correcting discrimination in ways that have real consequences for those who have been and continue to be left behind. We really felt that staying silent at this point in time and not taking action was akin to enabling persistent systemic discrimination to continue unabated, and it was time to step up for change. I think that there are signs of change, and those signs of change don't necessarily come from inside. They are usually pushed from the outside, whether it is Black Lives Matter or whether, you know, 40 years ago it was a civil rights movement. People demand representation um, within the institutions of society um, and demand that um, a, a certain kind of confrontation in which one looks at what, it, what is it that's being taught and then how can we transform what is being, being taught to make that much more representative, quite frankly, of the human species. Um, I think, therefore, while there has been changes, then what, what one also needs to think about how to accelerate those changes, how, how to make those changes um, also sustainable and therefore permanent. Creating sustainable, permanent change in science won't be easy, and it might make us uncomfortable. But perhaps we have to get comfortable about that. It's about showing global leadership. The global voice for science has little value unless it is a responsible voice. As scientists, we call regularly, consistently, for transformative societal processes, for systemic social change to safeguard the sustainability of our planet and the future of humanity. 
Now, science itself is not exempt from the need for transformation. And that transformation requires an openness to having difficult conversations. On the conversations around discrimination, they need to be about what has worked to improve diversity in science, where the barriers lie, what still remains to be done. And I would add a healthy degree of critical self-reflection on the part of international organizations like the ISC. There are huge challenges ahead for humanity, and we need science, all the sciences, to face them. In just the past year, the COVID-19 pandemic has completely reshaped the world, and it's unclear if it'll ever be the same again. But amidst the chaos, there is hope that we can make it a better place. What gives me hope is when I think about um, science, when I actually think about various forms of domination, I know that we are not where we were 100 years ago. And I think that too, when one thinks about science, and I think you know, about human sciences primarily, then it is always about us um, grappling with, those diff- with the difficulties and us bending the arc towards uh, a different kind of world. That always gives me hope. That's it for this first episode in the series on diversity in science from the International Science Council. The ISC has launched a project on combating racism and systemic discrimination in science in partnership with other organisations, matching its public stance with some critical self-reflection and action for change in science systems. You can learn more about the project and the ISC's mission online at council.science. Next week, we'll be hearing from scientists working in the Amazon and in Ghana, trying to make the research process more inclusive of local people, perspectives and indigenous knowledge. We'll be asking, how can diversity create better science? Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.